0: You are listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host Rochelle. Today we will discuss the disappearance of Melanie Etier. <laughs> Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here with you yet again. And I know that I say that each and every week, but each and every week I'm not lying. So I'm going to keep saying it until I don't mean it anymore. Uh, Guys, can you believe that it is August? This summer, this freaking summer, you guys, honestly, this whole year has just been flying by. I seriously feel like I was just coming up with New Year's resolutions and bam! Here we are, fast forwarded eight months, and I'm looking over my resolutions the other day and I'm like, yeah, half of these I'm going to have to roll over because I have not been doing these. But you know what? That's all right. Trial and error. We're just gonna roll them over like T Mobile minutes. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. Uh, There's a few things I wanna talk about before we dive into today's case. First off, let's just get housekeeping out of the way. I have an Instagram that you may or may not be following. If you're interested in seeing images or videos regarding the cases that we cover, you can pop on over there. You can also DM me a case suggestion. And PSA, I'm actually in need of some listener recommendations. So if you've been sitting on a good one and wondering, should I, should I not? Now is your moment. So send me all those listener recs. I also have a website. It's www.mysteriestillandsolved.com. There you can binge my, I think we're like 143 right now or maybe even 150 episodes in. You can also peruse my merchandise and you can learn a little bit about me if you're curious. I am going to be placing a batch order of t-shirts in about two to three weeks around my birthday. So if you like one, be sure to pre-order one today before it's too late. I have a patron program. I'm going to post the link in the show notes so you can explore what all of that entails. But basically, in a nutshell, I have three tiers. It's a $1, $3, and a $5 tier. Each tier comes with its own set of unique benefits. But the main perk for all three tiers is that each and every month, you will be blessed with a bonus episode. And I should also mention that after October, after our Halloween series that I do every year... I will be taking a little hiatus during the holidays. However, I will still continue to post bonus episodes during that time. So if you want to be able to hear my voice during November and December, if you feel like you can't live or go on without me, first off, honored. Second of all, that's a way for you to be guaranteed to get at least one bonus episode each and every month. That is it for housekeeping, but there are still a few things that I want to talk about. So, there are a few cases that have been very prevalent in the news recently, and I just wanted to take an opportunity to talk about them on the podcast. If you follow me on Instagram, then you know that I posted an article regarding what I'm going to talk about first, and it is, of course, Lori Vallow. So Lori Vallow was finally sentenced for her involvement and participation in the deaths of her two children, 16-year-old Tylee and 7-year-old JJ. As many of you know, this has been a long time coming. Lori received life in prison without the possibility of parole, and while there is literally so much I could and would love to say about my utter disdain, and disgust for Lori Vallow. I do not want to waste another minute in my podcast talking about that evil, disgusting, maniacal biatch. So instead, I'm just going to share my jubilation in the sentencing and the justice that has finally been received on behalf of Tylee and JJ, as well as to all of those who love them. Uh, there is this picture of JJ's biological grandparents. Um, I saw in an article, and it was taken after the sentencing. They're still in the courtroom, and they are seen embracing each other with like tears in their eyes. And that's really just like I don't even know how to explain it. Like I'm seriously at a loss for words. But it's just such a bittersweet ending to this case that has been just unfolding since 2019, and. I am so relieved and so glad that her punishment turned out the way that it did. I swear, you guys, if she had only gotten like a measly 10 years, I literally think that my eyeballs would have like caught on fire. Like, I think the rage inside of me would have been so much that I would have spontaneously combusted. Like, I would have been pissed. So, I'm so happy the way with the way that it turned out. I'm so happy that it's life without parole. So Tylee and JJ's family and loved ones, they don't have to worry about Lori ever getting out or having to attend hearings where they have to plead their case to this faceless board who gets to decide if this monster gets out or not. Like it's just done. It's a bittersweet conclusion, but it is done. And um, I and finding some semblance of peace in that. And I can only hope that the family and the loved ones are also feeling like some semblance of peace. I mean, obviously, the best case scenario would have been that none of this would have ever happened. But with it happening, I hope that we can at least find a little bit of peace in the way that it turned out and the justice that has been served. Okay, so next, in July of last year, I posted an episode. It was entitled Bear Lake Monster. In the episode, we discussed the legend of the monster and we kind of talked about how the legend is very enmeshed into the residing town's history. Um, and while there isn't anything additional to say about a Bear Lake Monster per se, there has been a bizarre and puzzling development in this normally quiet and sleepy town. On July 28th, so like less than a week ago, some young kids were digging in the sand in order to no doubt build an epic sand castle of sorts uh, when they made a gruesome discovery. So less than two feet below the surface of the sand, they found a human jawbone with the teeth still intact. Local officers were called to the scene. The area was closed immediately off to the public. And the thing that is so perplexing about this case is that Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho police departments had a little powwow, and they all went back 30 plus years. And none of these departments have any record or instance of a missing person, a possible homicide victim, or anybody that like wasn't found after drowning in the lake. So who is this individual? what are they doing there? How long have they been there? And why have they not been found yet if they were only two feet under the sand? This story is still developing. Uh, No autopsy has been released at this time. I mean, it does take time to do it and it happened less than a week ago. So they're probably still working on it. Um, But police say that they are going to have a long road ahead of them because it's not like they have you know cases of missing people that they're like oh yeah let's compare some dna to some family members and see if maybe this is them like they are at square zero like they're 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 really premature in this investigation they're in the embryonic stages of this investigation um so while i know that that is creepy enough to hear about i do have another level added to it it's not really going to mean too much to you guys probably, but it does mean a lot to me because I was super freaked out uh, because I actually visited Bear Lake on July 22nd. So six days before this jawbone and teeth were discovered and I was actually nearby this aforementioned beach. My son was digging into the beach just as those boys were. So I am feeling very fortunate today that he didn't stumble upon that discovery i definitely wrote that i'm grateful for that in my gratitude journal because that would have been so traumatic i don't honestly know if it would have been traumatic for my son cuz i don't think he would have like really realized what it was i think he would have probably thought it was a halloween decoration but it certainly would have been traumatic for me so i'm very happy that i didn't see it but i do feel like so sympathetic for these poor kids who were just trying to build a sandcastle and then this came and happened and ruined the family vacay. Um, I will continue to update you with any information that I learn about this case as updates are continually being made. Um, but that's about it for the Bear Lake thing. And then lastly, I know that I probably should have talked about this last week, but I don't know why, but it just completely spaced my mind. <laughs> Space. Uh, we're going to be talking about the alien whistleblower. I know that some of you guys were like, Rochelle, why are you being so radio silent about aliens? You talk about aliens all the time. And you're right. I do talk about aliens all the time. But I think the reason why I didn't talk about this on the podcast or mention it on Instagram at all is because um, while others were like, oh my gosh, what? Really? Uh," I was just kind of like, yeah, duh, duh. Like, I'm glad that they're finally admit- admitting it, but I am not surprised or shocked in any way. Like, I think if you live on this planet and you honestly thought that we were the only life forms in the universe, check your ego, check your privilege, you are very naive, uh, very dumb very, very done. Like what makes you think that humans are so special that we have this whole entire freaking universe and galaxy to ourselves? Like get over yourself. (laughs) So anyways, I'm just really excited that they finally are like talking about it. But am I surprised? No. Do I think it's going to change very much? No. Um, Because I think that there have always been people that knew. Always. Because, duh. Like, that's literally, like, that's the only word that I can use to describe this, that article that I read was just, okay, duh, and. Like, that's all I have to say about that. Alright, so that's enough for small talk today. I know what you really came here for. You came here to talk about a mystery, and oh boy, do I have a mystery for you. Melanie Etier has been missing for almost 27 years, and I'm hoping by telling this story today, it will get even more people thinking and talking about Melanie, and maybe, just maybe, if we keep doing this on a uh, significant basis, that this case will have a chance at being solved, and hopefully soon. Melanie Etier was born Christmas Day, 1980. She was a student at Okay, um, this is Ontario, so they have a lot of French names, and as you guys know, I did not take French in high school. I took Spanish, so we're just going to roll with it. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad, but you know what? A for effort because I'm going to try. She was a student at École Secondaire Catholique Sainte marie in New Lesquard, Ontario. She was very smart and an honor student. Étienne had been described as being salt of the earth and having a lovely personality. Melanie is the daughter of Celine Etier, whose family had moved to New Leschiard area when she was six years old. Mel, who um, was one of only four black girls in her small Ontario community. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Um, In fact, at the time of her disappearance, the population of New Leskyard was only 4,400. It has gotten bigger since 1996, but back then, yeah, it's 4,400. That's not a lot of people. So people really got to know each other. If you went to school together, they were kind of like your family. Melanie's father, who she did not have a relationship with, was from Botswana. And while there are, unfortunately, like all these theories on Reddit, which blame Mel's dad for her disappearance these claims are preposterous and completely unfounded as it was verified that her father was actually in Africa at the time that she went missing. Melanie was employed at a local daycare and she has um, she would recently taken an interest in learning self-defense from a family friend. Melanie dreamed of becoming a teacher after graduating high school, and there's not a doubt in my mind that she would have been a good one. From all the things I read about her in various news articles, she seemed like a patient, nurturing, determined, and loving individual. The daycare was actually attached to her high school, and Melanie worked there with her mother. Uh, Celine was also taking some part-time college courses, so this was probably a fun way for Celine to spend some time with her daughter. And we all know, like, if you've been a teenager, particularly a teenage girl, you know that there is a time in your life when you just decide that you don't want to hang out with your family anymore because they're just so annoying and stupid, um... I'm actually still going through that phase. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But I think that this is probably really good for Celine because she was guaranteed some time to spend time with her daughter. And she was able to witness her daughter in a professional setting and just kind of watch her baby grow. So I'm sure she loved having those memories. Um around the time of Melanie's disappearance, she stood at approximately 5 feet 5 inches tall. She weighed approximately 120 pounds and she had brown eyes and long braided black hair. She was fond of wearing hair extensions, same girl, same. Um she had not been diagnosed with any sort of like mental illness. She wasn't taking any medications. Um all of her friends who knew her around the time of her disappearance Like, they didn't think that she was maybe suffering from some sort of, like, undiagnosed condition. Um, So, everything seemed like it was on the up and up there. No suicidal tendencies or or cries for help or anything like that. Um, The night that she went missing, Melanie was wearing a green Nike windbreaker, black boots with a slight heel, a white t-shirt with a blue logo, and blue jeans. So... Let's talk more about the events leading up to Melanie's disappearance. On the morning of September 28, 1996, Melanie and her mom and siblings were at the house of her mother's friend, Sylvie. The ETAs were experiencing some financial problems and the power and water had been cut off at their house the day previous. Celine's, uh, friend um, had offered their place as a place for the family to kind of like prepare food and shower and get ready until they could get their situation sorted out, which would hopefully be soon. Um, they were still living in their own house, was still sleeping at their house and everything, but they were just using the friend's house to kind of, you know, maintain and hygiene and, and eat. While at the friend's house, Mel accidentally broke her acrylic nail, I hate when that happens, and she was visibly upset about it, most likely because she didn't have enough money to get them redone. In order to cheer herself up, she decided to head downtown, because when you're feeling down, you go downtown, and then there's only one way to go, butt up. There she was met with a friend who she met up with at the library, and she kind of convinced her to ditch her study efforts and join her for a fun day of shopping. Melanie had some important things that she needed to get. She bought some birthday candles... Frosting, candy hearts, and a new cake pan um, because it was her grandmother's birthday coming up, but they were going to actually be going out of town for the grandmother's birthday. So before her grandmother left, she wanted to celebrate. So they were going to be celebrating the grandmother's birthday the next day. Later in the day, the two girls met up with Melanie's new boyfriend, uh, Neil, and a few of his friends. The group then went to the Hollywood Video Store, which is probably. The most geriatric sentence that some of our Gen Z listeners are going to hear today. Um, Do you guys remember Hollywood Video Store and like Blockbuster? Oh man, I miss those places so much. Like even if they didn't have the movie that you wanted, because if it was the opening weekend of that movie being in a video store, there was absolutely no way you were going to get it they always had some sort of gem. You would just like go on a treasure hunt. You'd go to the horror section and be like, I want to watch a horror movie. And you'd always find like really lame, stupid horror movies. And those are the best. They're almost like better than the good ones, honestly. Um, So they decided to rent the movie Sudden Death, which seems ominous given the mystery shrouding this case. Um, Just seems a little bit like odd foreshadowing. After they rented the movie, the teens were on the prowl for a sweet, sweet location uh, to watch their movie. And you guys remember being teenagers, you get a movie and you got to find, you're basically like at the mercy of your parents to let, so that they'll let you watch the movie. <laughs> uh, so first they tried Mel's house, but Mel's room was messy. And also Celine reminded them, "Uh, girl, we don't have power. So how are you supposed to watch that movie? Um, Then they tried another house, but their friend's family was preparing for a move, and understandably, that was the last thing that that family wanted at their house was a bunch of ruckus teens messing up all the stuff that they did. Um, Last, they tried the house of Ryan and began watching the movie in the basement of the home around 10 p.m. while um, while Ryan's parents slept upstairs. Before the movie ended, two friends left early. One male friend left around midnight and a female friend around 1230 in the morning. The female friend was going to meet her ride closer to Melanie's house because the last time she had talked to her parents, that had been the original plan. So she took a similar walking route that Melanie was later going to be taking. And apparently on this friend's walk, she encountered a suspicious vehicle. So the vehicle was in a state of disrepair. Um, It had a patch on one of the doors, which was most likely in an attempt to cover up a hole of some sort. Um, there were either two disheveled teenage boys or two disheveled college guys in the car. The female friend couldn't be quite certain on the ages, probably because it was dark and she was probably also scared, so she wasn't able to kind of absorb all the information in. And the female friend said that the car seemed to be following her Almost in a way, like where she felt like she was being assessed or like analyzed. And she actually became so unnerved by the whole ordeal that she began to run to the next intersection where she was hopefully going to be met up with her ride. And fortunately, they were on time. They were not running behind because the car was there waiting for her. And she was able to get herself out of that situation scot free. Good girl. Good girl. Unfortunately, when Melanie left later, she did not know about this occurrence that had happened to her female friend. So when she left Ryan's home about an hour and a half later, she was not aware that there was this creepy vehicle with men inside kind of following and tailing girls. Upon leaving Ryan's home, her boyfriend Neil stood at the door and watched her walk down Pine Avenue before she rounded the corner at the end of the street and disappeared out of sight. Now, a lot of people crap on Neil for not walking his girlfriend home. And trust me, trust me, I get it. I get it. If it were a guy that I was dating, I would expect him to walk me home. But... We have to remember that this was the 90s. We're in a fairly small Ontario community um, that was considered extremely safe. And Melanie only had a short walk. Um, So there's really no way that anyone could have predicted what was later going to happen here. Because it just, like, this sort of thing just didn't happen there. Like, it was so far-fetched and so outside of people's realm of thought that something this horrible could happen. Another thing that people like to rag on is why Melanie didn't call for a ride. Well, for starters, it was very late. It was about 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning. And most importantly, remember, I told you that the power to Melanie's house had been shut off. So even if she had called her house for a ride, like those calls were not going to be going through. The next morning, Melanie's mom, Celine, was um, woken up by the sound of her daughter's alarm clock coming from her bedroom. She opened her eyes and thought, yay, finally the power was turned back on. So she walked into Melanie's room, turned off the alarm, and went back to sleep. She wasn't shocked. She wasn't worried. She wasn't concerned or surprised that Melanie wasn't there. She knew that her daughter had gone to a friend's house to watch a movie, and it was a pretty frequent occurrence that Melanie would fall asleep watching movies. So she just thought, you know, things happen. She probably fell asleep at her friend's house. However, later that morning, Celine would receive a phone call from the daycare center informing her that Melanie had never shown up for her shift at the daycare. Still, Celine was trying to take deep breaths and stay calm. Maybe Melanie had overslept at the friend's house because she didn't have an alarm clock. Um, She called Melanie's friend, and this is the female friend that she had met at the library and then the very same one who had encountered that creepy vehicle the night before. And she asked, like, hey, have you seen Melanie? Like, when was the last time you saw Melanie? And this friend informed Celine that she hadn't seen Mel since the night before, um, but that she had actually left the house before Melanie did. And so it was entirely important possible that she was still at Ryan's. Um, it took a while for Celine to reach all of the people that Mel had been hanging out with the night before because most were friends of Mel's boyfriend. and Celine, I mean, it was a new relationship. She didn't really have all of those phone numbers. After reaching out to everyone she could think of and still not having any answers to the whereabouts of her daughter, Celine filed a formal police report with the police. From all the accounts I read, it appears the police took this case very seriously from the get-go. There didn't seem to be any like runaway speculation on the police's part. I think the biggest complaint from the public regarding the police work done is that the police honestly haven't been releasing much, if any, information. Um, But they say it's because they want to make sure important information isn't accidentally leaked to the press, which may interfere with kind of deciphering a false confession from a true confession. So that makes sense. I can get where they're coming from. The police spoke to the female friend who had encountered the creepy vehicle. um, And apparently her account of her of what happened to her was not the only one that they had gotten from the night before. In fact, another young girl of color, color had had a similar experience. So she had been walking her dog late at night, When a vehicle matching the description that had approached her and the two men inside inquired about directions. Which is like literally the oldest trick in the book. Like a creepy car comes up to a girl and asks her for directions. Like seriously. So cliche. So cliche. Uh, The men later peeled away faster than a virgin on his wedding night. Because her dog started barking so intensely at these two men. This dog was not having it. Good doggie. Um, there was another witness who claimed that they saw someone matching Melanie's description crossing over the Armstrong Street Bridge, which was actually a bridge that would have been on Melanie's walking route home. So, after that, after that final witness, what happened to Melanie Etienne? The theories are many and range from compelling to completely bananas absurd. The most absurd being the one I already spoke about briefly, you know, her father being all the way in Africa, but doing it? No, that's ridiculous. And there's another one that her boyfriend, Neil, may have had something to do with it. And Ryan attests that Neil was with him for the remainder of the evening, and there's no possible way that he could have done anything to Melanie. Neal has continually been blamed for Melanie's disappearance. He's often referred to as a murderer by members of his community. He has been cited as saying that he feels tremendous guilt to this day that he didn't walk her home. He has been quoted as saying, it's one of the biggest regrets I have to hold on to for the rest of my life, end quote. Another theory that seems pretty prevalent within Reddit communities, although they're just speculation and not really backed up by fact, as far as I can tell, is that Melanie may have been hit by a drunk driver who panicked and then hit her body. So from what I can gather from reading these forums about this theory is that bars in the area closed at 2 a.m., but just a short drive away in a neighboring town Bars closed at 3 a.m. So oftentimes there would be people driving from one section of bars over to the other town so that they could make last call. And so I guess their theory is that it would have been entirely possible that somebody could have used Armstrong Street Bridge as a shortcut and then hit Melanie, panicked, didn't know what to do with her. And then just hit her body. But police want to assure you that um, the bridge was thoroughly searched and there was no evidence to indicate any sort of car accident, any sort of hit and run. Um, None of that seemed indicative of the evidence that they found on the bridge, which was literally no evidence. (laughs) Okay, so now let's get into the theories that have some actual substance, some meat on their bones, if you will. So theory number one that an uncle and his two nephews might be responsible for Melanie's disappearance. All right, so bear with me here. Apparently in April of 1996, months before Melanie went missing, Gregory Crick and his nephews Robert and Michael murdered a man named Louis Gautier. Michael and Louie had been in a relationship, but Uncle Gregory did not prove of this relationship. He was so upset by the same-sex component of the relationship. He just could not get over it. And he was kind of the master planner behind this whole atrocious plan and basically championed and cheered on his nephews as they carried out this murder to fruition. So I don't know how he did it but somehow Uncle Gregory got his nephew Michael to kill his own boyfriend simply for the sake that Uncle Gregory was a homophobe. Later on, Robert, the cousin who was not in a relationship with the man, was going around town, running his mouth, boasting about what they had done, and Michael and Uncle Gregory were concerned that he was going to be their downfall and that he was going to get them caught. So, they decided to take care of Robert the only way they knew how to take care of Robert. They killed him. What is wrong with this family? They need to go to therapy. Um, Robert was found stabbed to death and left in a gravel pit. Both Michael and Uncle Gregory were convicted and sent to prison for both of these crimes, but they were not sent to prison or arrested until later on in the year. So I know what you're thinking, Rochelle. Thank you for telling me this horrid horrid tale. But what on earth does this have to do with Melanie Ette? Well, I'll tell you. While in prison, Michael started telling inmates that he and his cousin and uncle were also responsible for the death of Melanie. He claimed that they had kidnapped her on her way home, murdered her, and then disposed of her body in a wood chipper. People in town believe this theory a thousand percent because Robert and Michael were known to be staunch racists. The redeeming qualities just keep adding up. Homophobic and racist. Okay, cool. Not cool. Like I said earlier, there were only four black girls living in this area at the time, and each and every one of them had a story to tell about being harassed, threatened, and called racial slurs by these men one of the girls named sarah said that she had been purchasing drugs from the cousin and apparently owed them money uh they threatened to shoot her in the face if she didn't pay them and actually tons of people witnessed this encounter and could back it up with police that because it had actually taken place in a public setting in like the middle of the day like these were just brazen racists sarah was so afraid for her life that regardless of whether she would get in trouble for purchasing drugs, she went to the police to seek out help because she was literally afraid to death for her life. Again, you're probably wondering, okay, again, what does this have to do with Melanie Etier? You're telling me about this rando girl named Sarah, but what does that have to do with Melanie? I told you, bear with me. Around town, Melanie and Sarah were literally considered each other's doppelgangers. I have not seen a picture of Sarah because it has not been released to the public. I don't even know her last name. So, I cannot tell you if I think that they look alike, but apparently people confuse the two of them all the time. And it's also important to note that Sarah actually lived on Pine Street Avenue, the same street that Ryan and his parents lived on. So, If you haven't put two and two together, I will go ahead and spell it out for you. It is entirely possible that Melanie's death could have simply been an unfortunate incident of mistaken identity. Perhaps Robert and Michael were in their creepy little vehicle staking out Pine Street on the hunt for Sarah. And when they saw Melanie walking down at like two o'clock in the morning, they kidnapped her, they murdered her only to find out that they had murdered the wrong person. Isn't that freaking nuts? Um, Even before learning about Robert and Michael's possible involvement in this case, the police were well aware that this crime probably had some sort of racially motivated intent behind it. So for a few months after Melanie's disappearance, all remaining black girls in the town were put under strict surveillance um, by detectives because they just wanted to protect their safety. They had no idea if there was somebody like on the hunt to murder all of the black women in New Leskyard. Luckily, no one else was harmed. There wasn't even any sort of like close calls or anything. The second theory is yet again another potential case of mistaken identity. And I know, I know what you're thinking. This case has a lot of cinnamon twists and churro turnies. Um, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone right now. Do you guys feel that? Because I feel it. So some people think that someone was hired to kill Melanie Etier. But just not this Melanie Etier. If you can believe it, <laughs> there were two Melanie Etiers living in this small community. And bear with me. She did not look anything like the Melanie Ettier that we're talking and highlighting about today, but she did attend the same high school and was a year younger, so they ran in similar crowds. I'm not really sure why the Melanie Ettier that would have had a hit on her. Like, I don't understand why the cousins and uncle wanted her dead. I don't even know why she was on their radar. Um, sources that I found were a bit wishy washy with the motivation or the reasoning behind it, but when it comes to this trio, you guys, honestly, it doesn't really seem like they need a reason to target someone. <laughs> They're just racist homophobic drug selling douche canoes <laughs> like I don't know i don't I don't think that they necessarily need a reason other than just like she looked at me funny and now I hate her, so let's kill her. Um, the third theory is that someone visiting from out of town may have done this to Melanie. In the area where Melanie was, went missing, there were actually two huge wedding venues, which were both booked out for the evening. The location is also really close to a major highway, so many people think someone from the wedding may have been leaving the wedding. They may have saw Melanie walking. They may have kidnapped her, popped onto that major highway. And they literally could have taken her anywhere, and that may be why we're not finding her body anywhere. Um, paired with this theory, also is just like this underlying tone of like maybe Melanie was kidnapped for the purpose of human trafficking. So kind of these two theories go hand in hand. This one is honestly pretty far fetched. At least the wedding guest, um, it does. There doesn't really seem to be any like concrete evidence. Um, But if that were the case, that it was just this stranger that saw her and just picked her up, it makes sense why we haven't been able to solve this case. Because cases where the victim is just selected at random, it's almost impossible to solve those cases. The cases that get solved are usually the ones where there's like this very, I don't know, there's just like this web of craziness going on and relationships and love triangles. But if it's just like, I saw somebody, I do not know anybody that they know. I'm just going to kidnap her and take her. Those cases are so hard to solve. So it may be why this one's being so hard to solve. Um, the final theory can simply be summed up with a name, and you're going to learn to hate this name, Dennis Levier. This theory is going to have you screaming and howling and wondering, is this case actually unsolved? I, should we even be talking about it on an unsolved podcast? Because it seems pretty solved to me. It's the longest of the theories because, without a shadow of a doubt, this is the theory I am most convinced is the answer that explains Melanie's disappearance. So apparently, uh Sylvie, who was the friend of the ete's family who had lent out her home to them so that they could bathe and shower, um, her partner of 37 years, Dennis Levier, has been suggested as a very likely suspect in this case. So Dennis was in a long-term relationship with Sylvie. Um he had some kids with her, he stepped he was a stepdad to some of her kids. And um the day after she was reported missing. Melanie's grandmother had a very unnerving encounter with Dennis. So He came into Celine's home and immediately walked into the basement to smoke a cigarette, which the grandmother considered very odd as he had never been down there before. There really wasn't any reason for him to be down there. And Celine absolutely did not allow smoking in her home. So first off, if that had happened to me, I would have been like, dude, what the are you doing in my house? You better get that cigarette out of here. Three days into the investigation... Dennis commented to the grandmother that the person who had harmed her granddaughter would have had to be very strong as she was capable of defending herself. And to prove his point, Dennis rolled up his sleeves and showed the grandmother deep nail marks on his arms, which he said Melanie had made while they were play fighting a few days earlier. Come again? What? What did you just say, Dennis? What? At this point, uh, Celine and the grandmother became very suspicious of Dennis, as according to his own aversion of events, this just wouldn't have made sense. Like, he said it happened three days before, but Celine was like, When would you have even seen my daughter to get these fresh scratch marks on your arms? It was just very, very suspicious. In the years following these interactions, Celine rightfully so distanced her family from Dennis because of these suspicions. On two occasions, he called Celine while he was in a hotel room, threatening to commit suicide. And on both occasions, while Celine didn't want to go, she did attend to Dennis, believing that perhaps he was prepared to make a bedside confession about his role in the case. But he never did. I can't even imagine being a mom. Thinking that this disgusting man, this just truly monstrous man killed my daughter and then he calls me and I have to attend to him if I want to get information. Like you would have to pretend to care about him when really you're just trying to get information out of him. I don't know. I don't really have a very good poker face, you know. I think that they would figure it out. Um, Other people who knew Dennis have also voiced their suspicions about the scratches on his arm, which extended from his wrist to his elbow. Um, Sylvie recalls him showing her the marks on the afternoon after Melanie disappeared, saying that she had made them while they were play fighting, though Sylvie also could not understand when they would have interacted with each other. Later that day, Dennis told his neighbor that the marks were not caused by Melanie when they were play fighting, but in fact caused by him brushing up against branches while he was looking for Melanie in the woods. Hmm. So he's already changing his story. If you're telling the truth, your story doesn't change. Um, The neighbor estimated that the marks were probably only about one or two days old because they hadn't even started to scab yet. Um, And neither of sylvie's or dennis's children ever witnessed him play fighting with melanie dennis had a long long history of making sexual advances against minors though not everyone in his life was aware of the extent of this problematic behavior his partner sylvie was aware of at least a few occasions on which he had made advances towards his daughter's friends and some of his friends just straight out knew, like, Dennis is a pedophile. I don't let him go near my kids. On one occasion around the year 2000, Dennis followed one of his daughter's friends into the sunroom of their home and told the girl that he would like to make her experience an orgasm. That's disgusting, Dennis. Go to your room. Uh, Dennis had a falling out with his brothers around this time, with at least one of them making it clear that he was no longer to be alone around his niece. Years later, Dennis was briefly jailed for sexually assaulting one of his daughter's friends in the family home as his daughter and partner were asleep. He was later acquitted in court and released of these charges. On multiple occasions, Dennis lured teenage girls to a hotel room, often by telling them or their families that you know, I just need a babysitter for my niece. I need a babysitter for my, for my cousin. Around 10 years after Melanie disappeared, Dennis actually lured her younger sister, Jessie, with a similar trick. So Dennis's father had recently died, and he offered Jesse work cleaning his mother's house that afternoon because he just said, my mom is so depressed about the death of her husband. I would love it if I could just pick you up from your home, drive her over there, and you can just kind of help her pick up. But instead, he picked her up and he drove her to a hotel room on the outskirts of town and coaxed her inside. Dennis locked the door behind her and consumed a significant amount of cocaine while stripping naked and making sexual comments towards Jesse. Dennis then alternated between sitting on the bed and going into the room's hot tub for four hours as Jesse pretended to text on her phone to avoid his advances. Jessie had made plans to meet her boyfriend at around 4:45 that afternoon and she was finally able to convince Dennis to let her leave. This is despicable. I don't understand how a man can have this long of a rap sheet of making sexual advances towards minors and not be in prison. And also like that whole story that I told you about him luring Melanie's little sister to a hotel room it's just giving me Jeffrey Dahmer vibes I don't know if you guys remember but like Jeffrey Dahmer kidnapped and assaulted a young boy and then years later kidnapped assaulted and murdered that boy's brother so it's just despicable it's despicable we need to have stronger and more inflexible laws regarding sexual deviancy I I don't get it. I, I feel like if I talk about it anymore, it's going to be one of those situations like the Lori Vallow situation where I just get so enraged that I may just spontaneously combust on this podcast while I'm talking. Um, while in prison for sexually assaulting a minor, Dennis was visited by Celine, who directly asked him straight out, were you involved in the disappearance of my daughter? But Dennis said, no, I can never hurt Melanie." and he suggested that the uncle and two cousins had murdered her. After his release, Celine again tried to make contact with Dennis, but he suffered a debilitating stroke the night before she planned to confront him. This stroke caused him to be paralyzed from one side of his body, and it gave him, um, it took away his ability to vocalize. He'd only make one sound, and witnesses say that the word or the Sound that he was making kind of sounded like the word away. According to his family, the stress around having to speak with Celine and the police may have actually caused him so much stress that it could have triggered the stroke. Celine maintains that she considers Dennis the prime suspect in her daughter's disappearance and she does not believe that the police made an appropriate effort to investigate him while he was alive because. I forgot to tell you this. This is probably important. After the stroke, he actually died a week later, so she was never able to confront him. Currently, the Ontario province is offering a $50,000 reward for any information that helps them solve the disappearance of Melanie Etier. In 2020, Celine said in an interview that she believes her daughter is deceased and that she has felt that way since the third day of the investigation. Local authorities also believe that Melanie is no longer alive. However, they are committed to solving this case and promise that they will never officially close it until Melanie's body is found and someone is punished for their part in this heinous crime. But I'm curious, what do you make of this case? Are there any theories that you're leaning towards? Do you agree with my very biased opinion on the validity of the last theory? Are you also team hate Dennis? <laughs> um, but do you think I'm way off? Maybe there's something that you know, something that you research that you think I'm missing, that you think I'm off base. Like, let me know what you think. Uh, so you can go over to my Instagram at unsolved. I made a post about it today and you can go over there and comment. And you can say, girl, I agree with you. No, 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 no. I don't agree with you. I want to know about it. I want to hear what you have to say. Do you want to know how to better support this podcast? Uh, Of course, you do. Um, So, you can go to my Instagram, like I said, Mystery Still Unsolved. You can go to my website, it's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. You can become a patron. I'll make sure to post the link in the show notes if you're interested in reading up on that. Um, I haven't asked you guys to do this in a while, but if you can. If you have a moment, if you want to go over to Apple Podcasts and just leave me a review, I would be so eternally grateful. Thank you so much. And refer me to all of your true crime-loving family and friends. And don't feel like you need to narrow who you talk to about the podcast to just family and friends. Like, you can tell anybody. You can tell your dermatologist. You can tell the pharmacist. You could tell that cute pool boy at a resort. It's a good conversation starter. Um, you can tell your masseuse, tell the vet of all of your fur babies. I just want everyone to know about mysteries still unsolved. And the only way that I can do that is if you guys help me by just continuing to refer me to all of the people in your life. But the best way to support this podcast is, and will always be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still Unsolved.